1: Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have on the line Adam Levine, who is the author of American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. Adam's book is published uh, by, in 2015 by Princeton University Press. Adam, welcome to the podcast.
0: Oh, thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, it's such a pleasure to have read the book, and I've been looking forward to talking about it so timely in so many ways. Before we get to what you did, why don't you tell us just a little bit about who you are?
0: Sure. Um, so, again, you know, thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Government at Cornell. Um, I joined the Cornell faculty in 2011, um, and broadly speaking, um, my areas of interest concern communication and attitude change campaigns and how we design and think about surveys and experiments.
1: Yeah, and you do such, yeah, such interesting questions, and, and you explore them in such interesting ways, which is, which is what we'll talk about. So let's look a little at the book, and and I, it seems to me that if we've learned anything about American politics over the last several months, it is that there are a lot of people who are very angry about the present and fearful about the future, and your book focuses on on economic fears, a certain type of fear. So what are the economic fears of Americans, and what are voters most worried about?
0: Sure, yeah, so what we've seen, um, you know, uh, over the past, I'd say, 30 to 40 years, there's an increasing trend in uh, economic insecurity um, ac- across sort of the broad middle class, um, and I'm using that term fairly broadly. Um, and but you know, and that, that manifests itself in a lot of different ways. And it manifests itself in terms of um, increasing college costs, increasing healthcare costs, um, increasing uh, retirement insecurity, which itself can be linked to. Um, not having, let's say, defined benefit pension plans that used to be at least more common. Certainly not everybody had them, but they were more common. Um, as well as um, increasing concerns about um, uh, losing one's job involuntar- uh, involuntarily, um, having one's wages uh not increase or potentially get slashed, um, competition from abroad for jobs and things like that. Um, there are also other dimensions as well, increasing child care costs um, and things like that. And so what this all adds up to is a picture in which life is um, a lot more insecure for many, many Americans um, than it was, say, a generation ago. And it really, and that insecurity reflects sort of, you know, a concern about essentially slipping off the economic ladder, slipping off of one's current position on the economic ladder.
1: Now, your, your book is also, uh, is not just about that. It's also about the variety of organizations that are worried about economic issues and and how they try to address these worries through collective action.
0: Yeah, no, that's right.
1: So what are the types of organizations that you focus on in the book? What are some examples of the organizations that that try to help us deal with these feelings of of economic insecurity?
0: Yeah, so the answer to that question has changed quite a bit, Um, let's say now relative to the middle of the 20th century and then even going further back from there. Um, and so um, one of the things I talk about in the book um, is the fact that, you know, in, uh, we've seen unionization rates that have changed tremendously, um, basically since, certainly since the New Deal era. Um, and so whereas used to have um, a, a much larger proportion of Americans, both in the private sector and in the public sector, were members of unions, now um, that's not necessarily the case. I mean, now you have, a, particularly on the private sector side, you have single digits um, of private sector workers that are members of unions. Um, and unions have um, often been linked um, to a variety of outcomes that make life less insecure uh, in an economic sense um, for many workers, um, ensuring a certain degree of wages and benefits um, and recourse in, in case one's uh, job is threatened. Um, and so on the one hand, you you have unions. On the other hand, you also have lots of other um, uh, kinds of organizations that, in particular, a state of Scotch Poles have uh, written a lot about, um, federations, um, that, uh, you know, broadly speaking, organized um, and, and brought together people um, from the sort of broad middle class and working class um, throughout the 20th century that just aren't maybe quite as active anymore. They have organizations like, and, and when I say not as active, what I mean is that their membership is not nearly as large. Some of them would be organizations like the American Legion, or maybe the Elks, or the Moose, um, organizations like that. Um, and so now, um, what we're seeing, and one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is, you know, if we're going to think about sort of what um, uh, political mobilization around, um, say, economic insecurities, broadly shared economic insecurities-related issues might be, um, one way to really sort of think about that is um, in terms of groups that are, you know, more commonly referred to as, say, like single-issue sorts of. Um, or if not single issue, maybe broad issue, um, but but not geographically specific. Um, and certainly not tied to one's labor force status. And so, like, for example, moveon.org would be an example. So they're not single issue, but they're also not membership in moveon.org. is by no means tied to uh, one's um, occupation or, you know, labor force status or anything like that. Um, and there are a lot of other organizations like that as well. In the book I talk about, so, for example, um, in the push for healthcare reform in 2008, 2009, 2010, there was an organization um, called HCAN, Healthcare for America Now. And it was, you know, basically the most prominent and largest coalition of organizations on the progressive side that was pushing for healthcare reform. Um, and they, so in this case, again, unlike moveon.org, they were pretty much single issue. Um, and they were trying to organize a broad coalition of citizens across the United States um, to help sort of, you know, Keep Congress's feet to the fire, to try to make sure that healthcare reform gets done.
1: Now, we've all watched political ads by one of these groups, probably more than one of these groups, or received an email asking for our support. You argue that each of us will respond differently to these communications. Uh, how is this a case? And, and maybe you could talk a little bit about your working theory about how mobilization works, or more importantly, doesn't work.
0: Sure. Yeah. So, um, but the book starts with this sort of, you know, um, and and this is slightly on the academic side of things, but as I talk about it, I think it would resonate with a much broader audience because it resonates with sort of, you know, the kinds of um, experiences that I think many of us have or we know people who have had. you know, there's, there's a lot of factors that go into whether or not people sort of become engaged in politics. And by becoming engaged, that can mean lots of different things. That can mean paying attention to politics. That can mean spent, uh, donating money to a political organization or a candidate that you support. It can mean volunteering with an organization. It can mean, you know, joining an email list or a whole host of possible outcomes, um, both attitudinal and behavioral. And there's a lot of things we know about sort of the kinds of factors that lead people to um, to become engaged. Um, And so caring about issues is is a really big factor. Um, Having personal experience um, with certain kinds of issue concerns, that's a big factor. Um, We know that people who simply have more on on an objective level, have more time, more money, um, are more likely to become uh, politically active. Um, And we also know, for example, that, you know, people rarely become politically active sort of on their own without sort of essentially an organization or a friend or somebody sort of coming to them and saying, hey, you know, um, we think that, you know, this is an important issue and we're wondering if you'd like to sort of, you know, join us and become active on the cause. Um, And so, you know, you have sort of this like wide range of both organizational as well as individual level um, attributes that are thought to be really important to getting people engaged. Um, The book starts by talking about all of that um, and, and acknowledging all of that because I think all of that is important and um, in a very big way. But I think that there's another sort of set of barriers to getting people engaged um, that hasn't really sort of been uh, um, elucidated as much as it ought to be, and I think it's really important, especially in the in the, the world of economic, uh, particularly in the, with the politics of economic insecurity, though actually in the politics of other issues as well. And these are kind of what I refer to in the book as communicative barriers. And what I mean by that is the idea that sort of, you know, most people don't walk around with a specific, um ideas to whether or not they would or would not get involved in politics or wouldn't would or would not become active on an issue at any particular moment. Um, those ideas are made, those ideas rather, um are, are those decisions, I should say, um, are taken in the moment when they're presented with the decision. So when an organization actually reaches out to them and says, hey, you know, would you be willing to donate money or donate time to our organization, and help the cause? That it's at that moment that people think about it. And so the information that becomes salient to them kinds of considerations that are made salient in that request can actually have a really big impact. And that's sort of one of the most, arguably one of the most fundamental things that come out of decades of research on political communication is that the kinds of ideas and considerations made salient in that moment can have a really big impact. Um, and so um, how does this all link up to economic insecurity? Well, the thing that I that I that I, that I worry a lot about in the book, um, and I think what is arguably the sort of, you know, kind of what I would say sort of the newest sort of insight in thinking about communicative barriers to political engagement is the fact that when we try to mobilize people around forms of economic insecurity, financial constraints that they're facing, you know, at some like very sort of fundamental level, what we're doing is we're reminding them about financial constraints that they're facing. And it turns out that when you remind people about financial constraints that they're facing and then ask them to spend money or time on politics, they're often less willing to do so. Um, It's basically, if you want to put it crudely, you're telling people they're poor, but then still asking them to spend time or money, and um, that can be a hard sell.
1: Yeah, it's just such an interesting and somewhat I, I, when you get to it, it's not as counterintuitive as as it as it sometimes as it might look, but I think it's so interesting. And you you go beyond just simply um, presenting this theory; you test it with a series of experiments. Would you walk us through how one of those experiments was designed? And then um, what you actually found. Uh, is this theory, in fact, true in the experiment that you did?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm happy to talk about it. So there's a number of different experiments, um, as well as a number of different uh, um, public opinion studies and, and, and some other survey data in the book to try to really kind of, you know, flesh out sort of what this would look like. Um, you know, the experiments are really are exciting in a way because some of them, at least, um, are, are done in the, in the field, um, in which I partnered with real organizations that are interested in knowing about some of the stuff that I'm talking about. Like, on the one hand, they're very interested in sort of making sure in in, um, potentially mobilizing people around various forms of economic insecurity that they're facing. And one of the things I should really sort of say is that, you know, this is by no means a partisan issue. When you look at the data, the public opinion data on, you know, should the government be involved in trying to, at some broad level, um, uh, um, or actually not at some broad level at, at very specific levels on specific issues, make life more secure or make you know make sure that there are economic opportunities for people, and that you know um, health emergencies and not being able to afford college like don't stand in the way there's very broad bipartisan support for that kind of stuff um, and so at a very sort of basic level just in terms of like the public opinion landscape there's actually um uh there there's far more of a consensus across partisan lines than I think one might imagine, given some of the political rhetoric that we hear, especially during the campaign. But setting that aside for a second, um, or, or I should say, not much setting aside as much as building on it. Um, so um, when I partner with organizations and that are interested in sort of, you know, trying to, um, you know, say, for example, address healthcare care costs, what we've done is we've done, you know, fairly, uh, at some level, fairly simple experiments where we, you know, have a, we're, we, ran, we we take a group of people um, that, let's say, are not currently members of the organization, and we randomly assign them to receive different kinds of solicitations um, that are related to, in one of the cases, for example, related to the cost of health care. And so one, in one case, it would be an organization. And this was a 501c3, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. Um, and that does, um, among other things, does a lot of different things, but one of the things that it does is it engages in voter education campaigns. And the voter education campaigns, they are not, explicit. they're certainly not partisan. They're not even really political per se. They're really just sort of saying, you know, uh, these are changes that are being made to policies and this is how they might affect you. And in this case in particular, this is how they might affect um, your health care and your health insurance. Um, And so what we did is um, we uh, randomly assigned people to receive either a letter in the mail, a piece of direct mail, that said, you know, this is the organization um, and this is broadly speaking, kind of what the organization does. And then another people, another set of people were randomly assigned to get exactly that same message, but with an added paragraph that talked about the skyrocketing cost of healthcare. Um, and, and, you know, and all of that was you know, completely real and factual information that had come from very well-documented sources. And that was information that arguably was very important to the people who were receiving our solicitation. And that's sort of the interest so, you know, what we're doing here is we're, ma- we're mentioning information about the skyrocketing cost of healthcare that ought to be very important to people. And according to surveys, it is very important to people. And what we found is that actually people's willingness to donate money to this organization, the 501c3 organization, actually was lower when we presented the information about healthcare costs than in the, um, the letter that did not mention healthcare care costs at all. And so it's just, so on the one hand, you're, you know, you're mentioning information, refers to issues that people care about, they consider to be really important, and it touches their daily lives, it's kitchen table issues all around, and it actually it's reducing their willingness to um, to spend money, i.e. making them less likely to become politically engaged.
1: Now, what does this mean for an interest group or a civic organization? What does it mean for what they should do to mobilize some more, uh, their supporters? Um what do you what do you do if, if you're trying to address issues of economic insecurity? Do you not mention that or do you mention them in other ways? What is what is the what are one of the, the the takeaways from from what you find the recommendation that you would make to a civic organization that was working on these issues? I would imagine they would say if we can't mention the issue, how are we even going to talk about it? So so what do you recommend?
0: Yeah, so I think there's a couple of different um, things to come out of this and, and things that I certainly talk about a bit in the conclusion. Though I actually, in retrospect, wish I even talked more about in the concluding uh, um, uh, chapter of the book. Um, so one is, uh, I'm going to start with sort of the, uh, well, there's two major ones. Um, one is, is that um, the, the people who are demobilized are the people who care about the issues but yet are personally effective. And so if you have a set of people that care about the issues but aren't personally, um so these like so for example in the healthcare case that might be people who um uh let's say care about healthcare costs and skyrocketing health care costs, maybe because of, you know, um family members who are uh, other kinds of family members who are experiencing them, friends, you know, because of ideological commitments, whatever it is. Um they care about it, but they're not personally affected. Maybe because they have really good health insurance, they themselves are in good health, whatever it is. Um, they can actually be mobilized. And they can be mobilized for the same reason that um, psychologists and political scientists have known that they can be mobilized for decades, which is basically that they care about the issues, and so you're talking about something that they care about, and that can be really impactful. Um, now the potential sort of downside with that comes in with, you know, that's at some level, you know, from a representational lens, that's a little bit of like, you know, a surrogate representation or surrogacy in terms of representation. Because you're basically sort of, you know, depending upon other people to essentially have the voice and keeping, you know, say, for example, Congress's feet to the fire um, or the interest group leaders' feet to the fire, um, you know, on these issues. And those people who care about the issues, you know, may have slightly different preferences in terms of, say, you know, what should be done about them. Um, and, and we know that to be the case, for example, in healthcare, that, you know, people who um, have are, are less likely to be personally affected by healthcare costs, even if they care about the issue, they also tend to be far more likely to support private solutions, let's say, relative to government solutions. So, you know, there's so there's definitely – so we need to be thinking seriously about that from the representational side. Um, if you're – and that also might not sound very concrete to an interest group leader. I mean, I'll fully admit. But here's something that I think would sound more concrete to an interest group leader and something that I, – I don't have any um, evidence on this in the book, and so this is slightly speculation, but it's speculation that I think is informed by – what we know about political engagement and, and civic engagement more generally in other contexts, and this is um, note how everything I've been talking about really cuts against this idea that people who find issues to be important are going to be more likely to act on them. So issue importance is essentially a motivational element um, in trying to explain and stimulate political engagement. But there's other motivations that people have for getting politically active, and so one, for example, is um, social. I mean for lack of a better term, social pressure or social influences, um, where let's say a good friend or a family member or you know somebody that you, you know, who, that you really care about comes to you and says, I'm involved in something um, and I would really love you to join me. Um, and so there's other sorts of motivations that can, sort of, that can, be, that can become really important at, at moments like that. Um, and so the, the key thing and, and one of the major sort of takeaways that, that I, I, I hope people take away from, I would never claim that mobilization around economic and security issues is impossible. Like that's, I mean, both well, that sort of historically is not true, and um, and and I, I also don't think it's true empirically. I don't think it's true. Um, I don't think it's true. Um, but I think what it is, you know, important to recognize is that there's this extra barrier to, to action that is based on the communications, this communicative uh, barrier to action that a lot of other issues just don't face because other issues. Don't
1: remind people about financial Such an interesting book. Again, the title is American Insecurity, Why Our Economic Fears Lead to Political Inaction. The author is Adam Levine. The publisher is Princeton University Press. Adam, thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thank you very much.